Thank you, Kurt. Um, the microphone working? Okay, I'm on. Let's see if we're working here. Tech check first. All right, we're working. Great. <clears throat> I love this church. I love it because, you know, it's just not all like perfectly put together. It's, it's kind of messy, you know? I love that. Even some of the things that happened this morning, you know, are uh, a little bit, you know, having the words shared. That's, there's a little bit of tension in that. But I believe God wants us to, to embrace the difficulty and the conflict and the things that come in front of us and that he shows us what he wants to do as we do that. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more today. Um, as Kurt said, my name is Mike Hatch. Was that the long or the short introduction? I think that might have been the long one. <laughs> my name is Mike Hatch, and I find the themes and threads that connect us, and I communicate them so that we can understand each other better and so that we can become better connected to each other. That's a, a life theme, a life purpose for me, <clears throat> and I begun to notice it over time in little ways where I'm in meetings at work and I like to listen to what people are trying to say and I'll find sort of a thread or a theme that's going on or in home groups. I just love to sit and hear what, what God is saying and what people are doing and find that thread and that theme and then, and then talk about it and we find more about what God's doing because of that. Um, that has had an impact on this church. Um, you've seen it every week you've come here, probably for about the last 15 years, and it's actually on that slide right there behind me. I had the great fortune of being involved in some of the web work that we did early on, about 15 years ago, and as I was looking at different pictures and these six subject areas that we talk about as a church and what it meant, uh, God showed me this idea of the water drop and how that's him pouring into us and coming into our lives. And then that creates a ripple as our lives touch other people's lives and it can, we get connected to them and it affects them. And those ripples then build mo a motion and a momentum and it becomes this tide and this wave that is then just reaching the world, that's just crashing on the beaches of the world and God impacting and changing lives every day. Um, and I love that it, we still use it, even though we go through changes and we've rejiggered the groups and we've gone after the website and we still see that there. And that's such an honor that I've been able to have a small, a small voice. I could hardly take credit for that. Uh, but it's fun to see that. Uh, and that's an idea of one of those themes that, that God does. As I looked at this sermons that I did here, I've done four or five sermons, uh, there was a theme verse that continued to pop out. Um, in those sermons, and even as I was working through today, it came back again, and it's the greatest commandments. In Matthew 22, someone came to Jesus and he said, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And today I want to dig into this idea of loving God and loving our neighbors as the way that he fulfills purpose 
and connection in our lives. I've talked a little bit about that before. These are graphics I pulled out of previous sermons. One in August of 2009, I did a sermon called uh, Finding Your Calling, which speaks to purpose, and I talked about how knowing God and then loving others brings about purpose in our lives, and we're going to hit on that again today. And I talked about the Trinity in March of 2015 and how God tells his stories through us. And the way he tells his stories is through the personhood of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that we're connected to him and to that through these great commands, loving God and loving our neighbors. So I want to do a little exercise about purpose. In fact, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why don't you stand up? We need, we've been sitting for a little while, lots of announcements. I'm in this weird position now of actually seeing through your eyes when these announcements are going on up here, and I'm thinking, oh, I want, I want to get up and speak, and they're going on. Like, I've never seen it that way before. I have more grace for you today than I have before <laughs> to see that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you five questions, and I want you to answer these questions out loud. Uh, the reason for that is for you. It isn't so that we can all hear what everybody else is saying about that. The first one's pretty easy. You just have to answer your name. Who are you? Okay, good. The second question is, what do you do? Excellent, good. That's right, just, just say it out loud. This is for you, kind of think about it. The third question is, who do you do it for? Don't listen to the people around you. I want to hear you saying what it is that you're doing. and who you, Okay, the next question is, why do they come to you? That's interesting, isn't it? Huh? It makes you think a little bit. All right, and the last question is, how are their lives changed? Go back, go back. How are their lives changed as a result? Yeah, that's tricky, huh? Okay, so you probably answered in terms of your professional life. I would ma imagine maybe a lot of the first time I answered these questions, that's what I was doing. <clears throat> and that's a perfectly rational thing to do. What you do is kind of where you go to work and what you do to earn income in order to pay for, provide for your family or whatever. Um, I want to go through the questions again for each one of us, but in a little bit different light. I want you to think about the answer that you give, would give to these questions, and we're going to do the exercise again, in terms of what God is doing in and through your life. So, the first one, probably same answer. Who are you? And by the way, you know, God has a name for you that you don't even know what it is yet. Like, that's pretty exciting to me. I could go that way, but I won't. What's this, the answer to the second question? What do you do? Yeah, harder to answer it a little bit, isn't it? In terms of what God is doing in your life, who do you do it for? Why do they come to you? And how are their lives changed as a result? Thank you. You can sit down. Finding this purpose in your life, this exercise, hopefully will give you something to think about 
as you answered those questions, the opening statement that I talked about finding themes is part of the theme and a purpose in my life. And I was able to think about that more concretely after I went through this. I, I should have given the guy credit. This actually did come from a TED video where he just says it's actually pretty easy to find your purpose. If you answer these kinds of questions, it's, it's not that complicated. And I hope that today that gives you something to pursue and think about as we pursue purpose. One of the purposes in this church comes out of the themes of the scripture in John 17. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. And as I thought about oneness, I mean, God, what does that really mean to be one with each other? How do we do that? It's so hard. It's really easy just for us to kind of do our own thing. I was reminded and I thought about what love is really all about. Love is hard to define, but one of the characteristics of love is that it requires in two, at least two people to be involved in relationships, or two persons, right, to be involved in relationship. And if you're going to love that person, you're going to let them say what they are talk, want to talk about. They're, you're going to let them talk and you're going to listen. Or you're going to let go do what they want to do, what they like to do, and you're going to go with them and do that thing. And it may not be the thing you want to do. And you may have a lot to say, but you are giving of yourself. You're giving of your time. You're listening. You're sacrificing a little bit of who you are in order for that person to be who they are. And then they do the same thing for you. So... For me, the idea of love and approaching oneness, this began to sort of gel in me. It was, God was stirring me about it. And it, it really started to become more relevant as I was watching my daughter climb. We love to go climbing at the climbing gym. And I was looking at her up on the wall, and I thought, what amazing things that she is going to accomplish in her life, as she's climbing the wall and she's facing difficulty, she's being vulnerable, but she's going after it and getting better. And that's a metaphor for life, that we're, we're working at it and trying to get better. And she couldn't do it without connection, literally in this case, because there's a rope that's connecting us and protecting each other so that you can climb the wall and if you fall, you won't get hurt. And the connection represented by that rope, I found, is a theme and a part of how God wants to bring about purpose in our lives. How he wants us to use the things that we do to impact other people to bring about change in their lives through this love relationship that we have where we're giving and taking of time with each other to see them grow and to see what God is doing. And there's really nothing that she couldn't do. Uh, she could become this, you know, amazing climber. I don't know if that's an aspiration she has, but certainly she could do so much. And her, a theme in her life is writing, and it's like breathing for her. She just loves to write. She'll skip out on watching a movie with us because she says, no, I'm in the zone. I want to go write. And I love that about her, and I'm so excited to see what that becomes in her life. 
because she has us with her, supporting her, protecting her, encouraging her. And the connection that we have, I don't know if you can even see it from there, there's two people there on that rock climbing and achieving great, amazing things because they're able to work together to support each other and be connected and then achieve something in their lives. But there's some risk involved, which is why you have the rope and why you're protected. And some try it without the rope. Free climbing is a dangerous thing, and some do that. I'm pretty sure he's free climbing. When I searched for free climbing, most of the pictures still had a rope in them. I couldn't find too many. And the risk is that you could fall. He's alone, and you could die. And I believe today that we're also at great risk because we're losing touch with our connectedness, that we're being disconnected um, in social media. We're more connected than ever to the number of people that are around us, but without any depth, right? We're, We're losing connection with each other. Even the devices that we use, right, is, is a disconnecting element. And we see a lot of stuff today about what a risk that is in, in our lives. And I struggle with it. It's, it's easy to get there and get on the iPad and just sit there and scroll through Facebook and watch videos and things that are interesting to me. But I'm, I'm not acting out in a love relationship if I'm doing that. I'm not listening to what someone else might have to say or doing what they might like to do. And certainly... In politics now, it's also kind of become more magnified and we point the finger at each other and we're sort of more disconnected because there's this polarization that's happened. Um, I found a video as I was doing research to talk about this idea of connection. I want to play that for you. It goes into one specific area, addiction, and talks about how connectedness is actually the most important thing for overcoming addiction. What causes, say, heroin addiction? This is a really stupid question, right? It's obvious, we all know it. Heroin causes heroin addiction. Here's how it works. If you use heroin for 20 days, by day 21, your body would physically crave the drug ferociously because there are chemical hooks in the drug. That's what addiction means. But there's a catch. Almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. Diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. 
But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex. Everything a rat about town could want. And they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. If you believe the old theory of addiction, that makes no sense. But if you believe Professor Alexander's theory, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're put into a horrific jungle in a foreign country where you don't want to be, and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, doing heroin is a great way to spend your time. But if you go back to your nice home with your friends and your family, it's the equivalent of being taken out of that first cage and put into a human rat park. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone, it might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds, to be connected to people you want to be present with. Addiction is just one symptom of the crisis of disconnection that's happening all around us. We all feel it. Since the 1950s, the average number of close friends an American has has been steadily declining. At the same time, the amount of floor space in their homes has been steadily increasing. To choose floor space over friends, to choose stuff over connection. The war on drugs we've been fighting for almost a century now has made everything worse. Instead of helping people heal and getting their life together, we have cast them out from society. We have made it harder for them to get jobs and become stable. We take benefits and support away from them if we catch them with drugs. We throw them in prison cells, which are literally cages. We put people who are not well in a situation that makes them feel worse and hate them for not recovering. For too long, we've talked only about individual recovery from addiction. But we need now to talk about social recovery, because something has gone wrong with us as a group. We have to build a society that looks a lot more like Rat Park and a lot less like those isolated cages. We are going to have to change the unnatural way we live and rediscover each other. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Huh? I was watching uh, a video of a guy addicted to heroin uh, day before yesterday in Mexico, and they were following him around, and they were asking him why. And he said, 
because it's the only way I can escape the pain and feel good enough to walk around and to work. Well, why do you work? So that I can earn some enough to get my next fix. And he just stuck in a loop of disconnection. And, and that's what, what's happening to us is we're dying because we're losing our connections with each other. And I love how that video talks about it. We are restored and we can find purpose when we're in relationship, when we're in connection with each other. Um, I, I want to explore this a little bit more. And I think now would be maybe a good time. That's sort of my intro. And the rest of the sermon isn't very long. So uh, with that, let, let's go ahead and pray for the service. And we'll keep trucking. Pam Barrett, I think. Did Pam agree? She did. Yay. Thanks, Pam. All right. Good morning. Um, so let's just pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning. Lord, we ask that your words would be in Mike's mouth this morning, that his words would be acceptable to you, Lord God, and they would bring life to us, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just come and penetrate our hearts, that you would speak. And, and, and even as the word came this morning about the dry bones, Lord, that you would knit us back together again in the places that are dry, that you would breathe life and light into our lives, that you would uh, restore those muscles and those sinews, that you would knit us back together in the places that are broken, both as a family, Lord God, in our natural families, but also, Lord God, as, our, as a church family, Lord God, and in our community, and, and even beyond that, Lord God. And then we just lift up, this morning, we just lift up Eastridge um, Assembly to you today, Lord God, for next weekend as they uh, prepare for Easter, that your presence would be there throughout the whole campus, Lord, that you would speak through every ministry that is um, um, involved, and that lives would be changed as well. And we just ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I dug into the idea of connection and finding purpose, there were three things that I saw in the scripture verses that we've been in that was really fascinating to me. Uh, and I want to talk about them a little bit different than maybe the way we've talked about these things before. Um, and I want to introduce them to you in terms of this climbing metaphor. Um, when Kaylee and I went climbing the first time, we had to take a class in order to get certified to be able to then belay each other and use the top roping devices in order to climb the walls. And that's kind of a vulnerable moment, the first time that you try to climb. And one of the tests that they give is you have to fall, and you have to catch the other person falling off the wall. And Kaylee doesn't weigh as much as I do. And thankfully, they'd clipped her in to the floor, to a sandbag, so that she wouldn't uh, fly up. But when I fell, she was pulled off the ground. That was awfully scary. That was a vulnerable moment for her. Step one in connection with each other is to be vulnerable. And I want to look at that a little bit more because I can see how God actually uses that vulnerability to connect us better. The second thing was that she had to face truth. We had to face the truth of the wall, which is really high, and your hands start to sweat. If you're like mine when you were looking at those pictures a little bit earlier, maybe your hands were sweating a little bit. Mine do. And uh, it's a little bit scary. There's a little bit of conflict and you have to face that conflict, whatever it is. It's someone in your life, they're going through something difficult, or they just want to do something that you just really don't want to do. 
but you're in a love relationship with them, there's a little bit of tension and conflict there. And I believe our connect, that's inherent to the way we connect with each other. It's important that we don't avoid that, but rather say, God, what is it that you're trying to do in this relationship now when there's difficulty? And lastly, the step three would be then a commitment, something that you respond and you take action to then do, to, to be God in the world, to be in that loving relationship with the person that you're relating to. So step one, vulnerability. If we look at the scripture here that we've been in, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple and they're praying, and the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, the sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He was vulnerable. He was humble. He knew where he stood, and he was kind of afraid, and he didn't let something stand between him and God. He just was who he was. And Jesus says that he will be exalted. In the simplest form, what does it mean to be exalted? It means that someone lifts you up. If we're vulnerable, it provides the opportunity for the, someone in our lives or for us to reach down and lift them up. And if we're not vulnerable, then how can we do that? How can we let somebody know the difficulty? I think the second thing here we see in Luke 18, where Jesus is talking about the children, who they, they were kind of shooing the children away, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And Kurt asked the question last week when we were doing discussion time. He said, what's different? And someone answered it perfectly. Children trust. Even when the people that, they're, that care for them aren't necessarily doing the best job. They just, start, they just have to trust because they're completely vulnerable. And children live in this place of trust. So I think there's a relationship of connectedness between being vulnerable and learning how to trust. The tax collector could be lifted up and he could learn what God wanted for him, could sense God's care, even though he was afraid that God was going to strike him because he's a sinner, but he was vulnerable and God can exalt us. He can lift us up and we can trust him if we're vulnerable. Step two, facing truth. We move down in Luke 18 to the rich young ruler. That ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth. I'm going to take a real quick aside here. As I was looking at the Ten Commandments again, and I was looking at these greatest commandments Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments actually say the same thing. The first commandments are about having no other God but God and don't have idols and don't take his name in vain. That's about loving God. And these ones, which Jesus quoted to him, are about loving your neighbor. They're kind of expressed in terms of don't hurt your neighbor, don't take, but that's what they're about. 
And he thought he was. This guy thought he was good. And Jesus put the truth in front of him. He said, okay, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when, after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. So Jesus faced him with the truth. And step two in our journey of connection to each other is to face the truth and face conflict. I can only infer that this guy couldn't love his neighbor because he was more in love with the stuff that he had. And I think it's pretty easy to identify with that. The video talked about that a little bit. We have more space to separate us. We have more things to separate us. And it's killing us because we're disconnected. And that's true. So what is it that God's showing us that we need to face? What's the truth that he's facing us with? <clears throat> we're a lot like the rich young ruler. And that made Jesus sad too. He said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it asked, then who can be saved? That's tough. It made Jesus sad. The rich young ruler didn't want to sacrifice of the things that he had. And there's probably something in our lives that Jesus is facing us with, a truth that he's facing us with that he's saying, I want you to let go of that so that you can love this person better. It might be different for every single one of you, but I think that's a good question for us to be asking and looking at so that we can be more connected to each other. I actually want to dig in then to this idea of commitment, the third step, right? So we face that truth. The title here is Commitment. The rich young ruler couldn't commit with, when faced with the truth. He couldn't take action. And so what keeps us from taking action? I think there's a couple ways. Um, I had, it was hard to actually refine this. The more I think about this idea, the more ways I find that uh, we get disconnected from each other. But I picked two ways that we avoid commitment, maybe two ditches of, of commitment, if you will. Um, and the first one is, in Luke 18, if we back up a little bit and look at the attitude of the Pharisee, the Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> not very vulnerable. Pretty individualistic. Thought he was better. And individualism is certainly easily recognizable in our culture today, and it's part of the founding of our country. You know, the Declaration of Independence, which I love, I love our founding fathers. I love the founding documents of our country. I love what this country is about. But in the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Good. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Good. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's good. But have we taken it too far? So individualism is a trap. If we're just doing what we want, we're not connected with other people. And the Pharisee thought he was better. On the other side of that, I think there's another way to avoid commitment, which is appealing to the group and hoping that, that someone, some group will solve the issues, that it, you don't have to be responsible for taking action yourself. The, the Pharisees, I think, certainly were doing this um, 
the parable of the tax collector and, and the Pharisee Jesus was telling them because they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Maybe that was a problem that the Pharisee had is that he looked at himself as part of this group of people. That's why he thought he was better. Jesus even says in Luke 11, when he was rebuking experts in the law, he says, woe to you. You load people with burdens that are too hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. The next passage in the Declaration of Independence says, these rights, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So it goes pretty quickly from life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and there's going to be governments. Now to them, I think that made a lot of sense because as John Adams proclaimed, that the founding documents of this country are only really suited to a moral people. But I kind of wish that Thomas Jefferson, when he was writing the Declaration, may have stuck another little phrase in there. And something like, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the responsibility to our fellow man. To kind of keep putting it back on us as individuals to be the ones who provide for each other. So that we don't just turn to the government. And uh, it makes me afraid a little bit when I see that there's so much cry for the government to do things. And uh, that ends up, it's been tried over and over again, right? They, in the Old Testament, the people asked God, give us a king, and he said, it's not going to work, but okay. Give us prophets, that's not going to work very well, but okay. He kept giving them structures that they thought they needed in order to be a healthy society when he knew they just needed him. And in the modern age, there are plenty of examples where power structures of communism have not led to healthy societies and stolen away the freedom of the individuals. And I believe that we can change this country if we simply just focus on our individual connection and responsibilities to support the people around us so that we don't need others to tell us how to provide. That's the tough truth. So what are we to do? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And I looked back in my life and I asked the question, where, where, where are places where God has used these ideas of vulnerability and facing truth and then taking action, committing to people born fruit. Um, There are many examples I could give, and certainly I haven't really touched very much on the idea of a marriage as one of these supremely connected relationships that I believe is a part of how God wants to sustain society. And I could talk about how my wife and I have been vulnerable to each other, and we have faced truth and conflict at times and then committed to each other, and we've seen our relationship grow over time. I saw a video uh, this last week. Uh, you can tell I, I do like social media. I like watch the videos. And I find those videos are touch points, and many of you have seen them. This one was um, about how as people grow old together, their memories actually become intertwined. How many of you saw that, that video? They're, they actually can't remember things except with the other person with them. 
Like the memory's in them, but the other person is actually part of like the recall of the memory or the trigger for it because they know something that then triggers what they, like the, their, their minds become intertwined over a lifetime together and their memories are intertwined with each other. It's fascinating to me. I managed people at Microsoft for a while. And I don't manage today, despite many best efforts to get me to manage again. It's kind of hard to eventually they're going to want you to have people working for you if you go up in the corporate ranks. But when I was managing people at Microsoft, there were two times, two separate times, where I had people working for me that weren't doing their jobs. They weren't succeeding, and it was a struggle. And I had to do something about that because I was the manager. I either need to make it clear to them what they needed to do in their jobs and or I needed to be helping them find something different to do. And in two cases, it didn't work out. And I had to fire them. It's the most difficult thing I've ever had to do is let somebody go. And at different times, you know, this took months and years of time working with them, trying to help them be successful, and then I let, had to let them go. But both of these guys contacted me later. And they said, I'm, I'm doing good. I've got a job. But more importantly, they contacted me to say, I found a church, and I've turned my life over to the Lord. They weren't Christians before. I fired them. <laughs> and it's because as we were going through this process, I was in relationship and connection with them. I was vulnerable with them. I distinctly remember in both cases where it was just felt hopeless that I said, look, um, what I'm about to tell you, I come to you as a friend and not a manager. But when I'm dealing with difficulty in my life, the thing that sustains me is my relationship with God and what Jesus Christ has done for me and my church. And I could get in a lot of trouble for doing that. And I was vulnerable to them. And I think that led to a new level of trust between us. And we were facing conflict. That was sort of inherent in the situation that we were in. Very difficult. And I had to kind of put it right every week. We'd write down, what are you going to do this week? And they wouldn't do it. And I would say, you didn't do it. Okay, this week, what are you going to do? We get, okay, well, here's the things we're going to do. And then the next week we'd check again and, you know, it's conflict. That's hard. But I was committed to them and I communicated that to them. I said, look, you're not happy. There's probably something you would really enjoy I don't think you're successful here because you just really don't enjoy the work you're doing. Maybe there's something more for you. Maybe you should find something that can bring joy and purpose in your life. And that must have come through. They must have recognized I really did care. And even though I let them go, that it made enough impression on them and I could hardly take credit. God used it to, to bring about new things in their life. And they were saved. I believe our connections are that important. It's a life or death thing. And we're dying without them. And we really don't even know what we're 
supposed to be doing. The reason for that exercise we did at the beginning is for us to think about purpose, and not just the purpose that we have to earn income, but there's something more. And if you can get the two things to work together, it's even better. But if you can find that purpose at what God's doing in your life, then it will bring about the true pursuit of happiness, I guess you could say. Act three of this conversation is a course about someone who was supremely vulnerable and faced a conflict and was committed and took action. And that's Jesus Christ. If he were answering those questions, he might say, I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I come and lay down my life for you, for humankind, but for you, so that you could know that you're loved and so that you could become who God actually created you to be. In Ephesians, this idea of purpose and connection is so powerful It says, is it not true that the one who climbed up also climbed down, down to the valley of earth? And the one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up, up to highest heaven. He handed out gifts above and below. His purpose to lay down his life was so that he could conquer death. And then in his conquering, he brought gifts back to us. Gifts of purpose. What's between the ellipsis in the yellow text there is pastor and teacher and it's professions. He brought those gifts and he conquered death in order to give us our purpose. Until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without fully alive, like Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills his purpose to bring about connection for us so that you could know yours and that you could be connected to him and that that you could become everything that he created you to be. Speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. That can change society. In front of you, there are two cups. And in these cups we can actually find this message yet again. The bottom cup holds bread. And that bread represents the body of Jesus Christ who was vulnerable. He came and he sacrificed himself. And we're the ones who did it to him. 
and he didn't want to do it, but he went through anyway. If you reach in there and you just break that bread to remember that it's us and it's our, our sin that separates us from him, but he broke his body so that he could restore us. We take this each week to remember that, to remember that he loves us so much that he was willing to give of himself. Let's take this together. And the other cup holds what represents his blood. His life poured out. His command to love your neighbor as yourself, I think, is fulfilled in us when we understand that his life becomes our life and that he poured it out for us so we could see others' needs met, relationships restored, and we could come into a love relationship with him and know what we're created to be. God, I pray that you would help us to remember as we take of this bread and we take of this representation of your blood, Lord, that you would help us to find our connection so that we could fulfill our purpose and that you would change the world as a result. Thank you, Lord.